0: On March 16th, the UN's International Court of Justice asked Russia to halt its invasion of Ukraine. It had found no evidence to support Russia's claim that Ukraine was conducting genocide against Russian speakers in the east of the country, Russia's official justification for the war. A day later, Russia rejected the ruling. So is international law completely impotent in preventing countries from going to war? And why has the law been more effective in constraining the way that countries fight wars, even when they are illegal? Has the way that the US and other great powers defied international law undermined its effectiveness, allowing countries like Russia to ignore it? And was Leo Tolstoy right in thinking that making war more humane and less brutal would in fact end up causing more suffering and destruction by perpetuating war into the future. Welcome to the Philosopher in the News. I'm Alexis Papazoglu. This week I welcome to the podcast Samuel Moyne. He is the Henry R. Luce Professor of Jurisprudence at the Yale Law School and a Professor of History at Yale University. He has written several books on European intellectual history and human rights, including Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World, and Humane, How the United States Abandoned Peace and Reinvented War, a book that argues that the way the US has accepted humane war as morally permissible has led to a distortion in the way we think about war, not as something bad in itself and something that should be abolished, but rather simply made less brutal. Samuel Moyne, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So on March the 16th, the UN's um, International Court of Justice asks Russia to halt the invasion of Ukraine, as it said, it hadn't found evidence to support Russia's claim that Ukraine was uh, conducting genocide against Russian speakers in the east of the country, which was um, Russia's justification for the war. And a day later, Russia rejected the ruling. And I wanted to ask you, are these rulings by the International Court of Justice ever respected, or are they always as impotent as they have been in this case?
1: They're generally impotent. I mean, I, I, you know, an excellent example would be the, the same courts, uh, ruling that, uh, the island of Chagos belongs to Mauritius, uh, and that therefore, you know, the United Kingdom, which leases it to my country for, to have a, a, a military base there called Diego Garcia is illegal. And, um, and yet, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's better to have, you know, institutions that uh, at least, you know, say, say what's, if not right and wrong, then legal or illegal. I mean, the main question I, I have about this ruling, you know, um, is what, what difference it makes when it seems like the international legal order is so selective and opprobrium. It visits on some states rather than others. Now, mm-hmm. in fairness, the the same court, um, you know, put my own country in in the dock at one point, which actually led the United States in in the 1980s in uh, a, a very famous episode to kind of like exit the the jurisdiction of the court. Um, nonetheless, you're, you're basically right that. Um, what we have now is kind of, you know, a a request that's ignored, much like the United Kingdom has ignored the request from the same court to, you know, leave Ch- Ch- Chagos Island. Um, mm. I think for international lawyers, this really matters that there's a judgment um, and they'll pour over it and ask questions like, well, even if Russia's uh, claim of genocide failed. Did it have other rationales, uh, you know, and did, did the court dispose of all possible rationales that Russia had? Did it have jurisdiction to do so? And so forth. Um, but, Mm. um, it, it was significant. It is significant. And so is, so is other legal activity. in in recent days,
0: what are the, what are the usual conditions that, um, would allow a country the legal right to go to war under the international court of justice what what are the usual kind of uh, parameters by which but which these actions are are judged? Well, so
1: I mean that the ICj is involved in this is is kind of um, plan B already. Mm-hmm. Um, the The general framework under international law is set up by the United Nations Charter. Uh, and it basically gives two um, legal rationales for the resort to cross border force, and the first would be that the Security Council has authorized it under its chapter Seven mm-hmm. powers. and the second is that it's an act of self defense under article fifty one either individual or collective. and um, that's that's a big exception. As uh, you know, I know we're going to talk about my recent book. What what I try to show there is that peacemakers get um, the United Nations kind of imagined and set up. But there's a loophole for great powers Mm -hmm. which have a veto, which means that um, they may not always get what they want in the Security Council in the form of authorization, although they sometimes do. But if they exercise a, a claim to self-defense, or frankly, any other claim, uh, they can't get condemned by the same body because they can veto any resolution. Right, And there are hundreds of vetoes in the history of the Security Council. So the reason why we are looking for other venues like the ICJ uh, to rule on like lesser claims, like this genocide claim, is that Kind of we never really set up a way of restraining great powers. It's like designed in mm. that great powers like Russia can escape scot free when they commit what other countries would you know f- find themselves uh, you know uh you know branded uh, as aggressive actors for doing.
0: Can you give us a bit of a a quick history of of this kind of international law framework, especially when it comes to um, conduct of war? Who decides it? I mean, how does this law get made? And I guess in in some people's mind, there's always this question about whether international law makes much sense in the absence of like a global government (laughs) that has the authority to actually enforce that law. So can you give us a quick summary of how we should think of this?
1: Sure, sure. So, so far we've been talking about, um, let's say the first branch of international law and and war, which is the the rules governing the resort to force. And of course, you know, international law is incredibly weak Hmm. in, in, especially when it comes to great power war. But what's amazing is that it's kind of occupied the kind of imagination Um, such that even aggressive states claim they're following the law. Hmm. And, you know, exhibit A for that recently would be Vladimir Putin's irate speech, um, in which he actually said that the Western powers, and notably the United States, breaks the law. He didn't engage in some kind of demystifying Critique, you know, to which I'm partial, which says, look, this is really a great power piece, which it is, you know, in which the law is a sham. He says, no, it's real. And it's just that um, I have I get I'm going to follow it where other states are breaking it. Um, I, you know, it's been argued that we shouldn't expect the same kind of enforcement um, at the international level as when you have a state at the domestic level, I'd actually argue that um, that's the wrong way of framing things. The right way of framing things is that you have selective enforcement at every level. Mm. And, you know, if, if you're a weak person or power, you're much likelier to get in trouble with authority Uh, and, you know, factors like race and religion matter in whether you're subject to law or or at least the enforcement of it at every level right. you know local national international and this is a case where powerful actors escape scot free once again mm. but that happens under states so we shouldn't you know maybe distinguish as 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 formally as we do between having a state and having no super state sovereign mm.
0: And what's the what's the story of how international law kind of comes about? Is it a product of um war in some in some way? Is it a result yeah. of seeing extreme conflicts and, and um their consequences?
1: In the modern world for sure. So that I mean, it goes all the way back and it's basically a kind of inter-imperial way of um kind of talking as far back as you know, the early modern period, and it gets labeled by Jeremy Bentham, you know, the law of nations had been the phrase before Mm -hmm. in the modern period. I think what matters is the conditions for legitimation of state foreign policy changes. And I write a lot about how women in the later 19th century are no longer willing to accept, at least in transatlantic war, um, uh, the kinds of bloodletting that visited on their husbands, sons and brothers that kind of breaks out after the kind of, you know, degradation of the post-Napoleonic peace. And so in the later 19th century, you get a huge uh, new, you know, pressure placed on statesmen to basically feign peacemaking. And what they do is they set up, you know, at least some kind of set of illusions that we live in a peaceful rather than a warlike world and make peace that the kind of expectation and war, the deviation, which, you know, it, it's never been, hmm. but what, what it means is that there's, there's some kind of new normative and legal framework where we can say Putin's a wrongdoer, even if again, there's nothing to do about it. Um, now there's a the whole other branch um, of, of international law with, regulating war which is around the conduct of hostilities Mm -hmm. whether you're fighting a legal or illegal war at the point of initiation um there's still the question of how you fight it and that's um you know risen in the last 200 years alongside this other kind of campaign to stop war or interdict as many as are worth interdicting. Yeah. And, you know, my book is really about how that body of law has become much more significant, um, even as great power war continues. Mm. And in some cases, you know, um, cosmetically pr- purifies or humanizes, um, great power war when we've stopped really putting pressure, at least before Putin acted on state's um, not to have war in the first place.
0: Mm. Yeah, so this is the this is the second part, as you say, of the of the legal framework framework that's in place that doesn't spell out the conditions of countries going to war, but once they are already at war, it spells out the framework for how war is to be conducted, and that's a lot of the uh, focus of your book, "Humane: How the United States Abandoned Peace and, and Reinvented War." So not everything is allowed in war and and love and war, as the saying usually goes. Um, you know there are strict rules about the forms of violence that countries can use, and when they violate those rules, countries can be accused of war crimes. And um, Joe Biden has already called Putin a war criminal over Russia's actions in Ukraine, which you know have included shelling of civilian targets, uh, targeting a, a maternity hospital, a theatre, residential buildings, and so on. So has this legal framework that delineates um, the parameters of what is acceptable in war been more effective at shaping wars than the first framework we talked about, which is more about whether a country is allowed to go to war in the first place? I
1: think it has to date. I mean, it's, it's only fair to note that our ancestors, you know, not just those women in the late 19th century, but kind of the world consensus at the end of world war II still placed the, the question of the resort to force uppermost. And you can see why if you, if you think of aggression as a gateway crime, then if you close the gate, then atrocity won't happen. And so much is legal in the conduct of war. We'll get to what's illegal. Hmm. But so much is illegal, including all the death of all the soldiers, right. collateral death of some civilians, you know, capital destruction, uh, wasted funds, destabilization, and unintended consequences. Think of the Middle East in the last twenty years. That that if you could prioritize the question of aggression, you're kind of taking care of a huge range of wrongs that may not be as narrow as what we've said you can't do in the conduct of war. Um, And just as an example at the Nuremberg trials, you know, the Soviet union came up with the idea of charging aggression first and foremost Hmm. crimes against peace. And uh, the U S and the UK were entirely on board and they said, you know, we can't, condemn the Nazis for war making and not be subject to that charge ourselves. But the truth is no one's really gotten in trouble for aggression ever since. Uh, And, you know, maybe Putin has reanimated it, like brought it back from the dead inadvertently. Hmm. Um, Although there'd still be the question, well, if he's, if, if, if a lot of people are suddenly upset about aggression, why his alone, Okay, but then, once we're through the gateway, you have this question of you know the conduct of hostilities, and just by dint of working on it so hard in the absence of having peace movements lately, lawyers and and ordinary people, I think, have achieved something. I mean they've set new expectations, some militaries, not all clearly, some statesmen, not all clearly hmm. uh care to make their wars more humane in their conduct and even use law to you know, try to, you know, improve outcomes. Um, Now we can get into the details of like what the law requires and what powers that say they care about it actually think the law requires, which are, you know, could, could, could be a way of a kind of sleight of hand. Yeah. Um, If you claim to follow the law and interpret it away uh, from covering the, the, your particular conduct and so forth. But I think there's no doubt that we live in a world of war that's profoundly shaped now by the the second body of rules mm. governing the conduct of hostilities.
0: Why do you think that is? Why do you think that states are more concerned with being seen to follow more closely this kind of second part about how war is conducted and what's allowed and not allowed than than the first part? Is it just that, well, wars are always going to happen. We, can, we, we just, the, the first kind of expectation of, you know, countries not going to war unless absolutely necessary is, is too high a bar. Therefore let's just focus on the second part. Or what is, what is the reason in your, in your view?
1: I don't think there's a strong moral reason because, um, again, you could have rules about conduct for the backup situation or for whatever just wars, you know, uh, turn out to be allowed, for example, because they're authorized by the Security Council or they are credible, credibly defensive. Um, but you'd still want to keep, as the Allies did at Nuremberg, some emphasis on the gateway. So mm. I think there's no excuse for abandoning it. Um, but then then I think there, there, there are not moral, but let's call them cultural reasons Um why a a lot of people care since let's say the 1960s or seventies about the conduct of hostilities. Um, And, you know, just briefly what I argue in the book is that there, there are kind of some things converging in our time. The first, and I think most important is decolonization. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that the people subject to hundreds of years of no holds barred violence by European empires get, to say something about the law. Now, actually their, their biggest priority is fortifying the gateway, you know, because the, what they don't want is a great power intervention, but they lose that. And so their, their secondary push to make the war laws of war more humane is their legacy. And that included things like saying, you can't kill too many civilians collaterally which is a new rule in the 1970s Mm -hmm. big implications for aerial bombardment which is you know classic great power technique but i think there are other you know other things going on west europeans at the same time don't have any place to fight anymore they've given up empire letting the united states protect them and so their citizens uh can kind of take a moral turn you know In the sense that they 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 don't they aren't they aren't sullying themselves anymore and can reconstruct their self image. Americans are shamed by the Vietnam War and especially by the revelation of the My Lai massacre. And even the military um, takes the laws of war in their new humane form seriously um, through the present. But I think the deepest reason gets to like cultural change and. I just put it this way, you know, in the old days, war um, was seen to be like a patriotic enterprise in which you when which you permissibly killed a lot of people. And especially if they were racially or religiously different, killing civilians in great numbers was something to celebrate,
0: Hmm.
1: not to condemn. World War II was not seen as a as a tragedy principally because of its Jewish victims, whom we now place at the moral center of those events. So several decades later, I think we'd have to get into why this happened, but we rethink war and we think states aren't great. Ordinary people caught up in war are, are the, the ones we ought to be concerned about. And um, our our priorities shift to kind of protecting not the privileges of state to warmonger, uh, but to prioritize limits when they do on the civilian toll.
0: So, in your book about humane war, you advance this kind of thesis that the US has in some way taken the framework of legal war, of less brutal war, to be a sort of carte blanche, right? As long as the, the rules of war are observed as long as interventions obey, say, the Geneva Convention, as long as there isn't a lot of collateral damage and casualties uh, to you know, very specific targeted attacks, say, of foreign terrorists um, by drones and other means. It has almost come to see war as not so morally problematic, right? It has come to see legally permissible to mean morally permissible. Um, so before we go into your objections of and in your critique of humane war could you say a little bit about what can we expect the relationship between the legal framework around war and our moral intuitions and moral arguments about war to align should we see them as kind of connected or is it naive to ever see the two as being relevant and law is just a kind of completely different framework than than the moral kind of uh, space?
1: Well, I, I think that's a fantastic question. You know, I, I think one of my troubles is that a lot of observers have, have seen an alignment between the law and morality that I think is not there yet. Um, and of course, we, we deploy the law to lots of ends, including moral ones. We want it to, you know, to be the the tool that protects our our moral interests and if we're you know part of a powerful state to help, help us oblige ourselves to follow the dictates of our conscience as we understand them uh, and have our our agents uh since we're principles our soldiers are our agents uh, to follow our expectations but um, as you say, I think there's, there's much, I think we're, we're, we're kind of premature in, in thinking that we should abstain from a lot of more moral skepticism about whether this body of law, it, first of all, in content is adequate. And second, whether it's in function, it doesn't involve some, I think, very counterintuitive and paradoxical outcomes. So it, officially, these two bodies of law we've been talking about are, 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 are segregated from each other. It's supposed to be an independent and separate question whether the war you're fighting is itself legal and whether you're fighting it legally. Right. But what I want to do with the book is say, we've, we've fought a lot of wars that we either excused or actually championed as you know morally justified and it it helped us somehow, or at least our politicians invited us to help ourselves to the excuse that these wars were now more humanely fought. Um, that that's like the the core content of Barack Obama's speeches about the war on terror. Mm. Um, and so, what I'm trying to do is say, you know, maybe we were premature, and especially with respect to the ultimate value of this law that is, you know, attempting to make our wars less brutal.
0: We'll return to to Barack Obama and, and what you think is a potentially different kind of avenue that um, his administration could have taken. But in your book, you 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 start out with sort of a history of the idea of humane war, and you refer to its early critics, which included, you know, the Russian writer Leo Tolstoy, author of War and Peace. What were Tolstoy's concerns about war becoming more humane.
1: Well, so he he puts in the mouth of his, you know, one of his two protagonists in War and Peace, Prince Andrei, the the supposition it's that if wars were left brutal and not humanized under the law, um, we would all be better off, including victims, because y- you would. Only go to war, Prince Andrei says, when it's actually worth fighting. Hmm. Um, And so there's a claim, there's a suggestion in that that I think is plausible, even if you think, as I do, that we shouldn't leave the war brutal, you know, all other things being equal, that humanizing it could nonetheless have a facilitation or legitimation effect and I mean, I don't think it's at all controversial that this is true, mm. um, at least a, as a, a conjecture about a risk uh, in in an act. And so, I mean, considering the death penalty, it's like widely accepted that if we're not abolitionists because we, you know, aren't able to be in political context or because we think some, you know, people ought to die uh, for their crimes and instead we reduce the cruelty of the administration of the penalty, um, then we're entrenching it, making it harder to challenge.
0: Right.
1: Uh, And that, of course, that only matters to the extent you think, well, the penalty ought to be abolished, or we're administering it too often,
0: Hmm.
1: however it's administered. Um, But if you think that about war, which I do, then uh you you begin to worry that that there this risk that he identifies of facilitation and legitimation in a good you know act of of reducing cruelty um ought to be taken seriously
0: yeah and there's this this interesting kind of uh analogy with slavery which kind of highlights the the paradoxical nature of talking about humane war and we you know could we talk about humane slavery and from our perspective now, perhaps it look that would look absolutely ridiculous to talk about. Well, you know, if we can't abolish slavery, at least we should, uh, you know, um, conduct it humanely and under certain conditions, and so on. So, if if we think about war as 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 big and a moral ill as, say, slavery, then yeah, one can very quickly begin to see kind of Tolstoy's perspective here. Um the argument that making war more humane ends up causing uh you know more suffering than less was also advanced by someone who, who comes to it from a very different perspective to Tolstoy's kind of pacifism. And it's the war theorist Glausevich, who argued that well, if war is allowed to be as brutal and as horrific as it can be, then it will be over soon and then also people will embark on it less often. And I just wanted to ask you whether you think intuitively, it sounds like there is something to the argument that rings true, but is it empirically true? So if we think back at, say, the First World War, which was arguably, you know, one of the most brutal wars in history, fought under kind of horrific conditions and lasted much, much longer than anyone had really anticipated. Um, and not only that, so so the brutality of war didn't seem to cut it short. But then it also didn't seem to prevent another very brutal war from following suit only a few years later, World War II. So, is that kind of argument by Clausewitz and and maybe to some extent Tolstoy really true if we look at it sort of empirically?
1: Well, I think you've got the essence of it, which is that it's an empirical question, and therefore I think the answer can differ given everything else going on. Um, I you know I myself think that the these two hypotheses, which are very close, one's about diminishing the frequency of war that's prince andré's view and one's about diminishing the length of the war that's clausewitz and as well as his american disciple of francis lieber who writes the first national code for armies um that's that that's you know basically um you know their argument and um i think Once we're in the realm of empirical conjecture, it's very easy to get skeptical Mm -hmm. um, for just given the examples you cite. So that's why I try using the analogy of of slavery that that Tolstoy cites and some others to kind of rehabilitate um, Tolstoy's argument so that it's not a, a hypothesis about leaving war brutal which, as you say, doesn't seem to me necessarily, or, you know, with great regularity at any rate, to have the effects he claims. But it could still be the case that when we make wars more humane, rather than leave them brutal, we run the risk um, of some kind of facilitation or or legitimation, some kind of entrenchment effect. Um, And it's very hard to prove that. But I would think that as moral actors, we'd want to kind of say, you know, there's an empirical possibility that we could incur this risk. And then we wouldn't necessarily want to not humanize war, but we'd want to figure out if we can control and manage the risk to make sure that our 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 virtue is not leading us into another vice, which is fighting wars we shouldn't. Mm uh, perpetuating them longer than we should, uh, losing that old consciousness that like the gateway, um, you know, at the start of wars is all important. Um, and, and just because we've lived in a period where we've seen lots of humanizing as the gateway has been less patrolled, then I think there's, you know, even if there's, you know, no absolute, you know, proof that these the that there's a facilitation effect we should return to the gateway and you know again, Putin is leading a lot of people to reach hmm. that same conclusion, not for my reasons, but just because it turns out that when Russia is aggression, it's much more outrageous to people than when our states are
0: right so the 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 best example as it were of of where this strategy of humane war can go wrong, even if it's kind of paved with good intentions is, in your view, Barack Obama, essentially, right? So so Obama gets elected by denouncing George W. Bush's war in Iraq and um, you know, vouching to end it, essentially. And instead, he becomes an advocate for this kind of humane warfare, very strict about the conditions under which the U.S. can use military force in other countries, uh, making it focus more on targeted uh, attacks by often drones and another uh, more as a as kind of usually described surgical <laughs> uh, interventions and so on in other countries, and you think that this becomes a lot more morally problematic than than we recognize. I think we've already kind of covered some some ground there, but you want to say a little bit more about that and. And also, why do you what what do you think the the alternative was here essentially for for that administration?
1: Uh, yeah, all good questions. So, I mean, um, I just think it's essential that in two thousand four five, you know, with the Abu Ghraib revelations, the Iraq War, but really the War on Terror generally got delegitimized and threatened. Um, on on grounds of its illegal conduct, de- detainee treatment above all, and and not least, torture.
0: Yeah. So interestingly, not the fact that the war itself from the beginning was, right. was deemed illegal, but the way it was being carried out. Now, in fairness,
1: a lot of people said it was, and Tony Blair got in much more trouble than George Bush hmm. uh, on, on those grounds. But, you know, Nowhere near as as much trouble as Vladimir Putin is in right now, right? Uh, And there's been a really interesting development that people like Gordon Brown have rushed to call for a new Nuremberg, Hmm. uh, not you know which they didn't uh, when they were themselves involved or you know their parties were involved in comparable events. Okay, but so so to me, it's essential that um, Obama comes into office, there had been the, the kind of a fledgling anti-war movement, but it collapses because he's a Nobel peace prize winner. Uh, but in fact, he's, he's transforming the war on terror. Uh, and he takes it to many, many new places. I mean, far more countries than George W. Bush's, you know, heavy footprint war and the means changed into kind of light footprint special forces, um, you know, war and no footprint, armed drones and other kind of missile uh, strikes. And, you know, I, it's just essential to me that um, Obama plays publicly on the legitimation effect mm-hmm. of, cl- of claiming it's mo- going to be more humane and I think making it so. Now, in fairness, the, the empirics count in the sense that the, 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 mo- the strictest rules he came up with um, which actually went beyond what the wa- law of war requires, since it allows collateral damage and even civilian death. But Obama said, if there's any risk of any, the strike's off. But it's very important that he restricted those rules to what was dubbed areas outside active hostilities. And so just as an example the war that against ISIS that he started and Donald Trump continued, uh, those rules didn't apply because mm. that, that was classified as like Afghanistan or Iraq, an area of active hostility. So, you know, a, a lot in this argument kind of turns on um, whether it's, it's, a, it's a case about um, what Americans think or what the world thinks about how humane the war is um, you know wh- where exactly it's being made more humane in contrast to other places and so mm-hmm. forth. But yeah, I, I base. I mean, my my basic argument is that Obama places at the very center of of our understanding of the ethics of the endless war on terror, its humanity, and then we're really for the first time, I think, we're forced to consider Tolstoy's arguments. I don't think war had really been made more humane before. And therefore, there's no risk of the kind that Tolstoy was concerned about. But then Obama, you know, provided that service hmm. for us. And then his argument is suddenly worth considering. Um, I don't know that there was an alternative. I, I'm skeptical that um, for various reasons in 2004 or 5, there was, there was an alternative of, of, of challenging the war on terror frontally. Um, there should have been more of that. And those who thought they could delegitimize it through focusing on torture turned out to be wrong. But even so, you know, we we can draw lessons. And I think there was a chance to end the war on terror when Obama was elected, and he failed to do it.
0: You talk in your book about how the US had this kind of more peacekeeping role, especially in the aftermath of the Second World War, and it saw its role in the world as sort of this you know, as a peacekeeper rather than as the state that could legitimately go to war when no one else was allowed to. Do you think that would have been a a realistic, as it were, expectation to have of the US? Could it have kept this role as a kind of global peacekeeper? Or are the events that we've seen in recent years, both now in in Ukraine with um, Russia's war against it, but also previously with the war in Syria and so on, is is that just proof that the U.S. could not uphold that role anyway, even if it had chosen to?
1: Yeah, I think more of the latter. I mean, I, let me just get precise about what the suggestion earlier in the book. It's really that those women and others who call for a transatlantic peace often idealize America as a guarantor of it, and eventually that's what happens. And it's only fair to note that there's been a European peace. Uh, until a few weeks ago um, with a few other exceptions Mm -hmm. and America has been central to it. Now, my emphasis is that that, you know, role was never peaceful and that America embraced by the very same token, a global war posture and originally a very brutal one, especially in Asia for decades. So, no, I think, um, you know, the original idea was to restrain all great powers and not just have one rule, you know, the others, but that's what we got basically. So I think we're still, you know, um, to back to the very beginning of the podcast, trying to figure out what would it mean to have a credible restraint on the resort to force. Um, and it can't just be that that's a regime for weak powers, um, I, I again, I mean, the Russian incursion is disgusting, but it 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 fits a pattern um, of great power uh, war without without constraint, um, and it it is. I just think it's very interesting that there there are those who want to rekindle the embers of this peace project uh, and see where we can take it since the american version i think has proved so wanting and of course there are bad actors worse actors among the other great powers um not china yet but russia for sure and many times before this one that are not being restrained and 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 cross through the gate at will
0: i mean there's there's this kind of um critique as it were of um the west uh, but more specifically, I guess, the US here, which is that, well, you never respected international law when it came to going to war and fighting the wars that you wanted. You always prioritised domestic law over international law. So even when the International Court of Justice would have ruled that the war in uh, Iraq that George W. Bush wanted to fight was illegal, Congress voted it through and the country went to war, do you think we can sort of blame um, the Western powers like the US, the great powers, for undermining international law and therefore facilitating what Russia is doing now in Ukraine? Or would that go too far and we should just focus on Russia's own actions and not see them as kind of justified by what the US has done in the past?
1: I just distinguish, would distinguish two claims, one of which seems plausible to me and the, the other less so. The first um, the is that there's there's a degradation of the you know international legal environment and it becomes more permissive um, and it's it's just very interesting again that Vladimir Putin cited Western history. Hmm and said the trouble was that it was all illegal. And I mean, very interestingly, he pointed to the 1999 bombings of Serbia, which Mm. essentially everyone acknowledged were illegal um, as uh, in violation of the United Nations charter and worth doing anyway for moral reasons. Um, And then Putin also cited, you know, not just Iraq, but Libya, Mm. Um, and you know, so, so you could make a cautious argument that the, the ongoing degradation of the international legal environment, it it has consequences. And when, whenever you exploit a, a, a novel, you know, rationale, um, for using force, you're enabling pretext for other actors.
0: It becomes precedent, to use the legal term, right?
1: Or, or even if it's not, I mean, it, it you know, it it becomes something that other people will say we can do it too. Now that that's when we get to the second argument, which is that you know, two wrongs don't make a right, and you know, the two quoque you know argument is a fallacy. So. It's kind of you know interesting that in prior years Putin has has complained about U.S. illegality, but now he's committed some of his own, and that just brings Russia down to the level of other states. Now it's been there before, and notably in the Crimean hmm. annexation. But I so, but I do think you know we can't be naive and say this is a first mover because. Putin isn't, and there are other there are other acts, and we should compare and contrast them, and we shouldn't set up a selective re- evil regi- uh, legal regime, where let's say the the weaker, not the stronger, get restrained or punished.
0: So let me ask you a, a sort of final question about war in general and how you how you see the future, as it were, of humanity. So you know, war has always been with us. Um, It's there in the history books and, you know, we go all the way back to at least Thucydides and and even before that. And we see theorizing about the war and and all sorts of claims about how it's kind of part of this kind of human struggle for power and security and so on. And I guess the question is, is it realistic to expect that war might one day be, you know, Abolished in the same way that things like slavery have been abolished, at least in some parts of the world. And if we think that that's a realistic sort of expectation, then maybe we we need to really focus on this, you know, humane war becoming a justification for never abolishing something that can be abolished but if we don't think that it can be abolished if we think that not only the legal framework but but even military powers can't prevent war so you know now for example nato is a hugely powerful military force in the world and yet it's you know not choosing to prevent war in iraq because oh, sorry in ukraine because of all the consequences that could come from it namely potentially worse wars so if that's the case, if war is always going to be with us, is there not an argument for saying, well, if it's going to happen, we need to focus on how it happens. We need to focus on this kind of humane war uh, law and the moral arguments around it and maybe make them, you know, even stricter than they are today to go down the Barack Obama um sort of line of saying, well, the law, the law as it is now is already too permissible. It needs to become even stricter. And so the bar of what counts as a, a war crime becomes even lower than it is now. So what, I don't know, what are your thoughts given given what's happening in the world right now? Do you think these are legitimate concerns? I do. I mean,
1: I, I just want to be clear. I'm I'm not an either or you know, theorist in this regard. And I, I'm a strong advocate of making war humane. And as you say, the trouble is that the the rules aren't robust enough yet. But that doesn't mean, you know, we should like only make that unoriginal, though still extremely important point, and not, you know, worry about other things. And you don't need to be an abolitionist with respect to war as such to think that there are a lot of misbegotten wars uh indeed for, from an american perspective it seems like every war my country has fought in my lifetime has made the world worse mm. and that's true true of 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 everyone involved my country as well as those it went off to fight and so it seems like there is a, c- a credible reason then to think we we ought to try to restrain force and have fewer wars now would there be some just and necessary ones left over well not lately but possibly in 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 the future and we want to have some way of winnowing um and 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 then there's another i think scarier feature which is that actually we've been um moving beyond war for hundreds of years now seeking alternatives to it informal modes of domination um and you know there's a, a great new book by nicholas Mulder called the economic weapon about the invention of economic sanctions which we're deploying now mm-hmm. um there's economic war where we tank a country's economy which would done to russia with big consequences for ordinary people um and then there's kind of you know, the way I close the book is is wondering if a perfectly humane war um, would if, in effect be a kind of, you know, deterritorialized policing, which has its own sinister elements, especially since policing in real life turns out to be the policing of some uh, by others and never the other way around, which seems like a relationship of hierarchy no matter how humane how much violence has been edited out and so you know it it seems like that's also worth considering not that we shouldn't make war humane but that in doing so we can also participate in like let's say the conversion of of war in into new new things that are morally troublesome now That doesn't mean when Vladimir Putin crosses a border and does something very old school, very 19th century, Mm -hmm. uh, and maybe wants to, you know, take land in the process that we shouldn't condemn him. Um, But it's not the only bad thing. And, you know, this argument doesn't apply to him since he's clearly not wanting to make his um, war humane. But others have. So th- this is an argument that is not intended to like oust other other ones, but to be placed alongside them in the mix because it's it seems to capture some novelties, uh, and I, I at least I, I I worry that it does, and then we should face those as well as old things like brutality, uh, and conquest.
0: What's a book that you would recommend to listeners as a kind of introduction to thinking about the legal framework of war, the history of it, and where we are today, as it were?
1: I think my favorite book, it's most accessible, um, too, is by a recently deceased Scandinavian author named Sven Lindqvist, and it's called A History of Bombing. And um, it's actually very uh, unconventional. It, It You're not supposed to read it cover to cover. It kind of like allows you to follow different threads through history. Uh, And it's very creative and very hard hitting. And I know from giving it to students that, you know, if you know nothing about the topic or even if you know a lot, it's a, a wonderful experience to kind of sit down with it.
0: Samuel Moyne, thank you very much. Thank you. As always, this podcast is created in partnership with The Philosopher, the UK's longest running public philosophy journal. To find out more about The Philosopher and its spring digital lecture series, go to thephilosopher1923.org. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Philosopher in the News, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. The link is in the show notes. I always appreciate hearing feedback from listeners. And it also helps others find the podcast. You could also share this episode on social media to help spread the word. I'm Alexis Papazoglu, and this was The Philosopher in the News. Speak again soon.